WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. One of the nice things about doing a program such as City Talk is that you get to pick and choose the people that you want to talk to, and you get to pick the best ones you want to talk to. Carl Stevens is one of those people. I've never interviewed a poet laureate before, but that's what he is. And uh, Carl, <laughs> it's really good to be able to sit down and talk with you and talk about memories and people and all kinds of good stuff. Kenny, it's an honor to be talking with you. Well, I, I appreciate that. But, but let's talk about you. You grew up in New England. What no, were I you didn't. doing? No, you didn't I grow did up not. in New England. I did not. I grew up in Michigan, and I, came, Michigan. Out to New, I came out to New England to go to grad school at the University of New Hampshire, and I, I graduated there with a master's in English, and I was living in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and, and that's when I kind of stumbled into radio. And forgive me if I cough every once in a while, I'm getting over a cold. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, but, but tell us about stumbling. How did that happen? Oh. I mean, I knew when I was in high school that I wanted to get into radio, <laughs> I knew it. I knew it in the 10th grade. Yeah, um, You're a wiser so, man than I. <laughs> I doubt that. But, but tell us how that happened with you. Sure. I'd be honored to. I was living in Portsmouth, New Hampshire at the time. And I was working, I think sort of as a teaching assistant at the university of New Hampshire. I was also working at a local restaurant as a dishwasher. I was playing drums in a local rock and roll band and acting in a local theater company. I was just having a great old time. And one day, this is in the fall of 1983, Kenny. One day, a member of the theater company came up to me and he said, you know, Carl, the local radio station, it was called WBBX, 850, I believe it was 8, 850 AM, uh, the same as EEI, but I, I don't know. I, I don't recall the call letters, but it was WBBX in Portsmouth. They wanted to hire somebody to follow along with the presidential candidates. This is in the in the fall of 1983. Report on what they had to say, and we'll pay $180 a week. And I thought that sounded like that sounded awesome. So I went to the radio station and I acted like a theater, like a radio reporter. I had never done any radio in my life. I never had a broadcasting class, but I had been an actor, and I I was pretty good with words. I had a master's in English. So I thought, I'll just act like a radio reporter. And they gave me the job. And that's how I got started in radio. And what did you do there? And how long did you stay there? <clears throat> well, at WBBX, what I did was follow along the presidential candidates. In 83, there were a lot of senators and, and Jesse Jackson all running to get Ronald Reagan's job. And he wasn't about to give it up. I never met Ronald Reagan, but I met everybody else who wanted his job. Um, although I'm not sure I met Walter Ma Mondale, I don't remember. Um, but anyway, it, it was awesome. Just these guys, you know, U.S. Senators, Jesse Jackson would, would talk to me like I knew something and I didn't know a darn thing. But <laughs> I had a mic flag from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and they wanted all the votes they could get in New Hampshire. So they talked to me like I like I was somebody. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. This is awesome. I want to keep doing this. And so <clears throat> and again, I apologize for my coughing. <clears throat> And so I wanted to learn how to do radio. And the way I did that, Kenny, was to listen to WBZ radio. And I listened to Gary LaPierre, who was the morning anchor. And when he talked, I talked. And so 
that's how I learned how to do radio was just try to be as good as Gary was. Of course, I was never anywhere near as good as Gary was, but that's how I learned how to do radio. Now, when I met you, we were both working at WEI. What year how would that you... have been? When, when would that have been? Well, 80, let's see. 87? I would guess around 86, 87, somewhere <laughs> around there. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but how did you, what made you get to EEI? Well, two words, brother. Hard work. Hard work. <laughs> That's it. Man, I, I worked mean, my butt off. I slept with the police scanner on my pillow and, you know, something went off. I got my butt out of there and I, I did a lot of stringing for Boston for WEI which was all news at the time, as you know, heck of a yep. station, wonderful station. And uh, who was it? Was it, was it John Rodman or Phil Serkin, who was the news director back then? It might've been whoever it was. When, when I first came, it was John Rodman. Yeah. Okay. So I think it was John who was, who was the head there. And, <clears throat> you know, I was in contact with him and I made it clear that you guys got anything. I'd love, love to have a job up there or down there because Boston paid a lot better than New Hampshire paid. And I was getting stringing fees from back then is when Boston stations would give you stringer fees. And of course, the national wires would give you stringer fees, Associated Press, UPI back then. So I was making decent money for me. Um, and I, I just worked and worked and worked. And I loved it. I mean, I, I stumbled onto this profession that kind of fit me because I love seeing new things and exploring new things, going down new avenues. But most of all, I like putting words to what it is that I'm seeing. And I felt like that there was poetry in reality. And the poetry was better than anything that I had read in my, you know, masters in poetry classes because it was real, because it was very real. And what I've been able to do for 40 years is just transcribe reality in a way that I can respect and respecting reality and transcribing reality and describing reality to whoever's listening on the radio at the time. That's what I get paid to do. And it's like, I haven't worked for 40 years. You know, I just say what I see. It's been awesome. It's been awesome. Okay. Now you, you met your, the lady that I don't know if she's still there, but you met the lady who was your future wife at EEI, right? <laughs> My future second wife. Yes, she was. And um, we've been divorced for, oh, geez, I don't know, 15, 16 years. But she oh. was a lo lovely, intelligent young woman, was a writer at the time. Um, got smart enough after a couple of decades to finally divorce me. But yeah, she was a, a wonderful, intelligent person. And if you remember back then, EEI had so many intelligent people. I mean, the, the thing that I enjoy talking to you about and, and why I was looking forward to talking to you, Kenny, is because if I say certain names, you know who I'm talking about. You know, Chuck Krause, Andrea yep. Carnero, Roseanne yep. Pawelik, Gene Hardigan. I mean, these were just wonderful, intelligent, hardworking people at, at, at really the, the prime time of radio. You know, that was... Remember when EEI, I mean, what was it, 5,000 watts? Wasn't it back then? Yep. It was a 5,000-watt AM radio station. And I remember, they, didn't they send Bob Oaks to Moscow for the Reagan-Gorbachev summit or, or I, I, I believe oh, that they did. I, 
something like but, that. I mean, it you was know, amazing. You, men you mentioned names. I, I've had Gene Hardigan on twice. Oh, uh, doing this program, I've had on Rod Fritz, who worked at, at WEEI. Um, wonderful, wonderful guy. And it was it was a, a Dave a Dave Shea was a good friend of mine uh, who oh, did yeah. the sports. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, John Hall, who eventually became an anchor at uh, Channel Seven, was there. I saw Jonathan Hall at the at the Hall of Fame ceremony, and, and what an amazing talent that guy! You know, you met him at EEI, right when he was a writer. Yep. Right. Yep. And he went from there, as you indicated, as an anchor and, and now a longtime reporter at Channel 7. Just one of the most credible faces and personas in Boston media right now. And that guy never gets old. I look at myself and I said, where did all these wrinkles come from? And Jonathan, <laughs> you know, Jonathan, he looks like, he looks like he's like in his, still in his 30s. You know, he, he's, he does a great job. Jonathan Hall, Rod Fritz, Gene Hardigan, just wonderful people, hardworking, intelligent people. Yep, John Rodman, one of the best program directors I ever worked for. You know what he's doing now? Have you been in contact with him at all? No, no, I haven't talked to him in many years. Yeah, I probably, uh, I don't know what I'd be doing if it weren't, well, any number of people have helped me get to where I where I get, ended up, but John Rodman was certainly one of them. Well, I got let go by WEI at one point, and when John Rodman... John Rodman told me then, he said, if I can ever do it, I'm going to bring you back. And he did. Is he that kept right? his word. And I always respected him for that. When I let go a second time, got let go the second time, Phil Sorkin, whom you already mentioned, was yep. there as program director. So I got, I got hired and fired twice by the same radio station. I don't know how many people can say that. <laughs> well... Well, yeah, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But what? that's, that is quite a distinction. But if it was with Phil, then it wasn't too long after that, that EEI stopped being an all news radio station, right? When the Celtics took over. Yep. Yep. Uh, biggest mistake they ever made. I thought, I thought when they were a news station and they had CBS as a backup and they were yep. also owned by CBS, there yep. wasn't a better radio station in Boston. It as was far as news coverage. And news 5, coverage was 5,000 watt AM station. And you're absolutely right. You remember they'd start right out of the morning, running right out of the gate with Stevie Sprasia out on the streets. And what that what Stevie knew, I mean, he was awesome. You know, in well, the as go ahead. and he went on to channel five, went to television, but you're absolutely right. EEI in its prime in the eighties then. And maybe the 70s, too. It was before my time. But people would go from EEI then to New York, to the network, right? Right. Um, in fact, my engine, my one of my instructors in college was an engineer at WEEI and used to run the board for the morning AM report. Wow. wow. When they had people like Bill Lawrence. Yeah. And uh, Paul Benziquin. Yeah. And Jim Westover, um, they were they were great. In fact, at one point, they were number one in Boston. Which is amazing when you think of a 5,000-watt AM radio station. That's amazing. Yep, it sure is. Now, how long, how long were you there, and what led to your going to BZ? 
Well, that's kind of a funny story, too, because I was part time at EEI. See, the thing of it is, for a brief time, it, when I was in New Hampshire, backtracking a little bit to the mid 80s, I was working for WOKQ because they paid me $220 a week. And that was more than I was making at WBBX. So when I, after that, I got in contact with the folks at Channel 11 and they said, come work for us. So I worked for, oh geez, I think it was maybe half a year. I'm only guessing as a television reporter, public television reporter. But Kenny, it was just, for me, it was kind of boring. You know, you put together these long thing pieces once a week and I was doing that Monday through Friday. And then I'd get out of work Friday morning after we taped for the Friday evening show on New Hampshire Chronicle. And I went down to WEEI and I worked Friday night and Saturday morning. So this would have been the late 80s, I guess the mid to late 80s. And it wasn't long after that, that crack started hitting the streets of Boston. So I would just go, you know, over to Doughboys there on over in like the Dorchester, corner of Dorchester, and just listen to the police scanner and just wait for hell to break out and just drive toward hell. So I had this amazing <laughs> juxtaposition of this bucolic sort of five minute New Hampshire think piece about who knows what, I'm not sure. And then the rat-a-tat-tat helter-skelter of a Friday night in Boston in the late eighties. And, you know, I wanted Boston. <laughs> so I ended up living, quitting my job in television in New Hampshire. It was very short lived. I wasn't meant for television. I got a face made for radio. What can I tell you? <laughs> but, <clears throat> um, and I moved to, I was living in Somerville for $180 a month at, at Washington street up from Union Square with a couple of friends. I was playing drums in a rock band and the lead guitar player and the bass player and some other guy, the four of us shared this, you know, we had four rooms. It was awesome. And if you follow Washington Street on up, you get to the Schraffs building and that's eventually where WEI was. Although when I started, it was over at the Prue. And so anyway, I ended up quitting a TV job and I made more in two days working in Boston than I was making all week in New Hampshire. So I thought, what the heck, I'm just going to do this. And I pick up odd shifts here and there at WEI. But I think you asked how I ended at DEI. Is that it? Yep. And got to BZ. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I don't remember the exact time, but I do remember that there was kind of a hint that a, a rumor that the Celtics were going to buy us and, and um, going to take us over and we'd all be out of the job and of course, that's what eventually happened, but that's not why I left. I left because I was part-time. I was part-time for a couple of years, and I was up for, uh, I wanted to get a full-time job, and I can't remember if it was Phil or John, <coughs> might have been Phil, who had to make the decision. They wanted more of an anchor type, an anchor reporter with the emphasis on anchoring, and I was more of a reporter, so they gave the other the job to the other guy, and that just... You know, I, it just, I didn't I didn't like that. And it came at the same time that a friend of mine, he was a writer in New York and he had an artist girlfriend and they had a place down in North Carolina. I don't know how it worked, but they were in Durham. And they were going to Europe and they were looking for somebody to house it. And I said, I'm going to do that. So <laughs> I quit the part time job at EI and went to house it in Durham, North Carolina. And 
that's where I was for, I don't know, four or five months. And Lee, the, the woman you mentioned from WEI, she went with me. So we were down there. I think I was working somewhere. I don't remember what, but I'm sure it was nothing glamorous. Uh, but we eventually made it back to Boston. And then <coughs> I got started up at BZ because of the Pamela Smart murder trial. It's, uh, when was that, 91 maybe? That, Somewhere that, around there, yeah. The, uh, this is the Seabrook, New Hampshire teacher. She was an uh, audiovisual something or other, I don't know what. But she dealt with high school kids, and she had an affair with one of the kids and convinced him to kill her husband. And it was a very, you know, it was, it was quite a story. You can see the movie with Nicole Kidman. Um, and they wanted someone to cover the trial. And the news director... Brian Whittemore called me up and said, Carl, you want to do this? No, I wasn't doing anything. I was back in Massachusetts. <coughs> and I said, sure, love to do it. And so that's how I got, got in. And um, it went well. And so I picked up shifts here and there at WBZ. And that came at a time, by that time, WEI was out, out of the news business. They were sports. So there was kind of a news vacuum in the city. And WBZ had always had, despite the fact that WEI was all news, WBZ had always had an incredibly credible news presence. And I think primarily that's because of the people. You had Diane Stern, Anthony Silva, and most importantly, you had in the mornings, Gary LaPierre and Gil Santos. That's the voice of news and that's the voice of sports in the city of Boston. And they they were tremendous. They were fantastic. I would have, wouldn't have, I wouldn't be in this business if it wouldn't if it hadn't been for Gary and Gil was awesome, too. They were just so much fun to work with. So anyway, BZ decided to make the gradual transition to more of an emphasis on news. So for me, the timing was perfect, Kenny. You know, I got involved, got in the door with the Pam Smart murder trial. And I thought, well, this guy, you know, he doesn't suck. Let's keep him around. So they did. And one thing led to another. And soon it was me doing the writing and every once in a while some in-house reporting but mostly writing and editing for gary and then gil would do the sports and i think first it was dave maynard in the morning and then tommy bergeron and don batting was our outside reporter so it was a heck of a team in the morning and it was a great way to to get in the door at wbz and a wonderful time to get in the door at wbz and i you know they haven't kicked me out yet so i'm still there <laughs> Well, even when I was there in the early 70s, they had a five to six news block and then they had all talk. And then that changed from four to six with a two hour news block. And then, of course, the rest is history. They in 1991, they decided to go all news. But yeah. I'm curious as to what it was like to cover that kind of trial at that time was there did you have access to a lot of people did you talk to pam smart or anything no, like that no. no 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 pam smart would never have been available she was always under lock and key you know she was let in by the guards let out walked out with the guards and the way i covered that trial is the way i covered every trial yeah you know, i just listened to the testimony record the testimony try to find and try to pinpoint those parts of the testimony, whoever was speaking that were particularly poignant. And I love covering trials because there's always this door of truth that opens. And it's a door that opens in almost no other venue. 
because by law, you have to tell the truth. And even if you're lying, even if A is lying, once B, C, and D take the stand, they realize, or you realize as a listener, that A was lying. So eventually, in a courtroom, the truth comes out. And that's not always the case on the sidewalk, in the workplace, or anywhere else. But in a courtroom, in a courtroom, more often than not, the truth comes out. And that's a wonderful thing. And so, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't brain surgery the way I covered that trial or any other trial. I just listen to the testimony. I record the testimony. And boom, something's going to click. Something's going to happen. And you say, shoo, that's a story. That's a limb on a tree of truth that I got to get out there to my listeners. Because I'm the one telling the story about this trial. I love covering trials. What about cameras in the courtroom? Do you think that might have influence on how trials turn out? Do people perform differently in front of a camera than they would if it was just microphones and people like you just covering a trial? I suppose so. That certainly was the case in the O.J. Simpson case. And, and But when you asked me that, you uh, kind of hit me with something that that I wish I could do something about, and that's recording in federal courts from coast to coast. You know, any kind of audio recording is prohibited in any federal court in America. And I just do not understand that at all. You know, when I covered the Boston Marathon trial, for example, and some of those impact statements, and it was day after day after day, Kenny, and they were voices of people who were injured, who were part of just a fraction of what they were before that day. And I thought, man, people should be hearing this. They should be hearing these voices because these are people who were impacted by what happened on that day, the day of the marathon bombing. And I could hear it. And I could easily have pulled my phone because I was in an auxiliary room. A lot of the press members who wanted to file as the trial was going on, and certainly I was one of those, you know, file every hour. What's happening? What's happening? What's happening? So I was in an auxiliary room. We were getting an auxiliary feed. So I could have easily recorded off my phone the impact statements and then played that on the air. But the law prohibits me from doing that. So I didn't do it. And I don't get it at all. I just don't understand at all why there is a prohibition of audio recording, not visual, but because you're right. I think, you know, you got a TV camera in a courtroom that can that can affect the way Somebody's going to testify, certainly the way the lawyers are going to act, and maybe even the way the judge responds. I don't know. The TV, you know, TV does, the camera does change people. I get that. But if you're just recording audio, I don't see what the big deal is in federal court. I just don't get it. And that's, you know, people bring that up every once in a while because Donald Trump is going to face, you know, trial in a federal court. People would want to hear what's happening, and they're not going to be allowed to unless something changes. Uh, it's funny, too. You mentioned O.J. Simpson. I just finished reading a book by Daniel Petricelli, who represented the um, uh, the families of the murdered victims. And he even said in his book that Judge Zito acted differently in front of a yeah. camera yeah. when when that was going on. We all do. I think anybody does. You got a camera pointed to you, you're going to be a little different. Yeah, I get that. I get that. But I just don't get, I'm a radio guy, Kenny. 
you know, and I, I don't see what the big deal is with audio recording in a federal court, but I, I believe it, you know, TV changes people, but TV also has a, an extremely valuable place. You know, I go back to the Rodney King video, you know, oh, visual, the impact of, of visual reality, it's unparalleled, you know, and sure, radio was king in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and then television comes in. And that it elbows, you know, rightly, it has a unique place in the presentation of reality. And that's what news is, is the presentation of slices of reality. And video does it in a way that's very different than audio. You know, I'm an audio guy, but video can do it in a way that I can't do it. And so in radio now, as you as you know, Kenny, we have a tremendous emphasis on our on our social media component, on our video uh, component. And what WBZ, the younger reporters, um, Matt Shearer especially, with his TikTok, over a million views, some of his videos. It's just really, and they just, WBZ, a 100-year-old station, Kenny, just won the National Merle Award for that social media space for our TikTok work. And primarily because of what Matt is doing and other younger reporters at WBZ, because we're all about, you know, as I was saying earlier, we're just reporting on what we see. And it's easier to report what you see or what I see as a reporter, if you can see what I see. And Matt and some of the other younger reporters at BZ, they're doing it in such a unique and creative way. And uh, I, I think it's awesome. I think, you know, it's very different than what I did at their age 30 years ago. But I think it's awesome. But I also think that it's kind of sad that uh, some older reporters, other than yourself, who are seasoned veterans, aren't there. I mean, most of the people that I'm hearing, um, there's nobody at BZ anymore that, that I knew. The yeah. last one was Lop, Gary LaPierre, and of course, yeah. he's passed away. But you know, other names or other people, there's nobody at BZ I know anymore. And that's that's kind of sad. Been. Kenny, that's the way it's always been, though, right? Yeah. If a listener, let's say somebody who has started listening to WBZ in the 40s, he's listening in the 1960s, and he's saying, you know what? Nobody I used to listen to was on the radio anymore. That's the way it is. We all get older. That's the way it is. And But I understand what you're saying. Um but uh, I, I don't know. And it, it, it is different. And the role of radio news is different. And there aren't the uh, minor leagues the way there used to be. You know, it took me 10 years to get to WBZ, working my way up to smaller radio stations that don't have radio news teams anymore. So that that to me is kind of sad, but it's it's not so it's really not sad. It's reality. You know, we have access to more avenues of information than ever before because of the Internet. And, you know, that's certainly been, you know, a threat to radio news. And, you know, what we used to be, we used to be the masters of, the kings of. We used to own the reality of the now. Just get on a phone. It used to be a pay, a pay phone. <laughs> You know, just get on a phone and say what you see and you're on the radio right away. You don't have to wait for the reel to get back to the TV station. You don't have to wait for tomorrow's newspaper. Radio was immediate. 
Well, then the internet came along and the internet is immediate. And, you know, if our business is to understand what reality is, then I think what we have today is awesome because we have access to more avenues, more of immediacy than ever before. But at the same time, there's the threat of distortion of reality, the twist of reality, the manipulation of reality, and that's a whole different avenue. You know, all I'm talking about is covering a three alarm fire. And I, you know, I used to be the best at that because I'd get there, report on what, what I saw. Are there any injuries? What was the cause? What's the extent of damage? Boom, boom, boom. I got you. Well, then somebody comes along with the camera and they can FaceTime it. They can show you what's happening. And guess what? As a radio reporter, I can put out my phone and show you the same thing. So I don't know how I got going there, Kenny, but I guess there's there's good and bad and in 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 the in in the avenues of immediacy that are accessible to us as members of the media because right now anybody with a cell phone is potentially a member of the media you know what i mean oh absolutely does television overdo it sometimes with 24-hour news service <laughs> I don't know what overdue means anymore at a time when I can get up in the middle of the night. And I do sometimes. I'll get up in the middle of the night, check a website and see what's happening right now. So, no, I mean, we're we're a, a capitalistic society. You know, if there's if there's a demand, there's going to be a supply. And if the stuff and I think there is a demand, there's a demand to know what's happening right now. So to, I, I think the risk, certainly with the 24-hour news cycle, is that just like when you eat something, you need a little time to digest it. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes when you have, you know, the demands of a 24-hour, 24-7, what's happening right now news cycle, you don't have enough time to, as a reporter to digest and put into context what it is you're seeing. And so I can see where that's a danger. But at the same time, if it's just pictures and those missiles are landing right now and you can show those missiles landing right now and it's three o'clock in the morning in Iraq or, or Gaza or wherever it might be, then you show them because that's what's happening right now. So, no, I, I don't think it's a danger. I think, you know, it's out there. If you want it, it's like bread at a supermarket. It's right there on the shelf. If you want it, grab it. If you don't, don't. Now, you briefly mentioned the Boston bombings a few minutes ago, allude to that, if you would, and tell us about your day, that particular day. Well, I don't want to talk about that for, uh, for a number of reasons, but what I would like to talk about is just the way that the community recovered. And in the, uh, in the, in the days after that, it, it was sort of like opening an envelope it was sort of like the way we came out of the pandemic, you know, you just sort of slowly and you kind of recovered. And I remember on, on Boylston Street, um, the businesses reopening and it was all the levels of uncertainty that were around at that time. And what I remember more than anything about the marathon bombing is, and this is maybe going to sound a little strange, but is the face of Jahar Zarnayev in the courtroom and how young he was and how in the world he and his brother 
held that city hostage, how everything stopped for these two young people. I mean, he was a kid. Jahar was a kid. I, I don't know about Tamlin, but I mean, Jahar was a kid. And then in covering the trial, just this tragic ripple effect that these two, and I had never even heard of a pressure cooker bomb, but these two bombs, these two bombs made out of pressure cookers had on so many people, so many fractured, broken, and in a couple of cases, dead people. And it, how it just, it, it just didn't, it just didn't fit. You know, in some things for me, when I listen to the truth kind of unravel itself in the courtroom, you know, I nod and I, yeah, that makes sense. Even I was in the courtroom when we discovered that Whitey Bulger was an FBI informant. And I look back and I, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. And then the testimonies would come out, Moderano, Fleming would take the stand and all the, that, the FBI stuff. Judge Mark Wolf deserves a big pat on the back for all he uncovered with the FBI conspiracy with Whitey Bulger. I mean, that was an amazing time, but I, I, and I'm sorry to go on a tangent like that, Kenny. I got from Jaharzor and I have to Whitey Bulger there. And you know why? It, it's because they both, they both became real to me in a courtroom at the Monkley Courthouse, at that federal courthouse. Um, I, I, I think but, the name that will stick with me as far as the bombings is concerned is Martin Richards. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Did you... Did you get to meet any of the victims and, uh, that, that were involved? And, I, did, I, talked survivors? To, I talked briefly to his, uh, to Martin's dad, but um, no, no, they all took the stand. I mean, all the survivors. And I, I kind of remember this was years ago, so forgive me, but you <laughs> know, after, after they took the stand, they would, I kind of vaguely recall them coming to microphones, maybe outside the courthouse, because that's where we usually set up after a day's testimony and listen to people. But I, I just don't remember. I'm sorry. I, I, that's I, that's I, all right. That's all right. That's that's understandable. Um, but tell me about tell me about working in a COVID situation and all yeah. the press conferences that you had with with Charlie Baker. Oh well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I like Charlie Baker a lot. He was uh, I, I lived in Swampscott. I had a house in Swampscott and and uh, Charlie Baker was ran for selectman in Swampscott. And I just watched him work his way up. He and I don't know if I should mention this, but I think he well, definitely he and I were the two tallest people in a local <laughs> kickboxing class there in Swampscott over the gym at, I can't remember the name of the gym we were at. It was a little neighborhood gym, but I have a lot of respect for that guy because he wanted to do good, you know, and he started at the local level as a selectman and he ran for governor. Deval Patrick beat him the first time and Charlie just kept at it and, and he just kept going at it. And so, yeah, he would have press conferences. I think some of them, when, I can't remember when we started going on Zoom. It, there was a time when everybody started going virtual. And so there, I would cover some press conferences and wouldn't even be there um, and just cover it on Zoom. Um, so I re, that's what I remember about. And, and just the, 
you know, I felt sorry for the tremendously challenging position that he was in and his governors across the country were in during the pandemic. It was, they were all in a no-win situation. It was a terrible situation. But what I remember about it is I, I never stopped reporting. You know, I'd wear a mask. You know, I still had a motorcycle back then. So I remember I'd ride a bike and I, I went into Chelsea quite a bit because Chelsea was a real hotbed. And, you know, I wasn't worried about about getting sick because, I, you know, I, I just I probably shouldn't mention and talk about, you know, my reaction to the official response nationwide to COVID. But it was pretty clear from the outset that anybody under the age of 65, if you were healthy, this was not going to kill you. You know, you were going to get real sick. It's going to be the flu. But unless you had some immunodeficiencies or if you had some underlying, you know, and, and there were a lot of underlying, you know, illnesses that could be exacerbated, respiratory illnesses that could be exacerbated by COVID. I get that. But I didn't have any of those. So I didn't worry about dying. And I wanted to see how people were responding. And what I found, Kenny, was just an amazing matrix of people. And matrix is probably not the right word, but it was this, there was no script for this. People were doing good things for other people at a very difficult time. And Chelsea, especially, Chelsea got hit worse than anybody because, you know, it's, it's very low income, very tightly impacted geographically. Um, a lot of people got sick. Um, and, and it was a scary time for people, but then you had the Salvation Army stepping in. You had, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the group. It had a Spanish name, but it was, they were so impressive. And I did stories on them and I just loved seeing the flowers of the garden of humanity kind of blossom during this otherwise very dark and dismal time. And we just kept reporting. All of us at, at, BZ, at BZ just kept reporting because it was so important to get out whatever information we, we could during the pandemic. It was a terrible time, but it was sure unique. Yeah. Now, when I was growing up, I used to listen to people on CBS was my network. Yeah. Uh, and I used to listen to people like Cronkite, um, Douglas Edwards, uh, oh gosh, uh, Christopher Glenn. Um, <laughs> and and I remember Westinghouse people like Eric Engberg and um, um, Rod McLeish and, and people of that ilk. And I loved all of them. How do you think newspaper reporting is today as compared to back then? Newspaper reporting? I mean, uh, radio, and <laughs> radio and television reporting. Oh, well, I'm not an expert on the on the network news reporting. Um, I, I think there's in terms of radio, you know, I used to string for ABC uh, network as well as CBS out of New York. But this is 20 years ago. I'm going to be 70 years old in a year and a half, Kenny. So I'm not sure I'm the right guy to talk about what the current situation for radio is. But my guess is that there's a heavy reliance on uh, television resources, television sound. I know, and you know, that there are fewer people working in radio news than there were during the time that you're talking about. You know, we both know of people who've been laid off 
in radio, news, locally, as well as nationally. Um, there just aren't as many jobs available. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot, there are more avenues of information and more possibilities to access sound, maybe from the internet, from other sources. I really don't know. But I can, I'm pretty sure that whoever's doing whatever they're doing on the national level, <laughs> local level, and radio news, you know, they're doing a good job because it's, you, it, it's one of those jobs, I think. I had, a, I had an uncle who didn't like what he did, and he was a butcher, and he died at a fairly young age. I think radio news is something you do because you love it, you know? And, and so my guess is, and maybe that's an erroneous assumption, but I don't think so because I've known a lot of people in radio news. Man, I remember, oh, geez, what was his name? What were those guys? I went to Havana. Remember when the Pope went to Cuba in the late 80s? Or no, late 90s. In the late yes, 90s. Yeah, sort of, yeah. And I, I was there with Rich Lamb from WCBS. And oh, I can't remember the other guy's name. But a couple other guys and some network radio reporters. And they were just so impressive in terms of their intensity and their level of commitment. And I have little doubt that whoever's doing whatever they're doing at the national level and radio have that same level of intensity and commitment because you can't do the job without it. You know, you got to have a love for it. You do. You know what my favorite radio news story was that I've it, ever done in 40 years? It, no. it, wasn't, it wasn't even a news story. It was in the fall of 2004. And do you remember what happened in the fall of 2004 with a little baseball team in the city of Austin? Yeah, vaguely, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I was assigned, Oh, absolutely. I was assigned to cover every playoff game and be with the Boston Red Sox during 2004, just like I had been in 2003. And in 2003, Kenny, if you remember what happened in the last game against the New York oh, Yankees. Do I, I was, remember? I was, sitting in, I was sitting in right field at Yankee Stadium when Aaron Boone comes up and hits that home run in the 10th inning. And that was it. You know, that's the way the Red Sox would always end their seasons, right? It was always a yep. disaster. It was always a heartbreak because that's just the way the Red Sox were for more than 80 years. And yep. I remember, you know, my job was to get instant reaction. So I went up to a fan. He was a Yankee fan. And he was laughing. And he said, ha, ha, ha. The three B's, Buckner, Babe, and Boone. Aaron Boone, we beat you again. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> well, a year later, I was in Yankee Stadium for another Game 7 in 2004. And I was sitting in right field. Johnny Damon hit a home run at me. David Ortiz hit a home run at all of us in right field. It was a great day. And, and it went on to just the impossible dream the real impossible dream of the Boston Red Sox was in 2004. And I remember I was in St. Louis, Kenny, after game four, standing on the mound. And there were a lot of Red Sox fans along the uh, uh, third base side in the stands, just yelling. And I bent down on the mound in St. Louis and grabbed some, some dirt from the mound. I thought, I'm going to keep this. And then I looked at the fans and for whatever reason, I thought, nah, I'll just, I just dropped the soil. and But I feel like the soil of that game and the miracle 
of that time has stayed with me all this all these years you know it was it'll be 20 years right this this next yep. year it'll be 20 years and yep. the funny thing is that was back when we were just discovering what was possible on the internet and so there was a guy who was kind of in charge of this burgeoning branch of wbz on the internet our website etc his name was nick darling and nick said carl you're a pretty good writer why don't you blog why don't you sit in the stands and blog? And that's exactly what I did. And so I have a base, I created a base blog, inning by inning, in some cases, pitch by pitch. I still have it here. And I wrote some poems and it was just awesome. And then looking back on it, and, and by the way, more than 10,000 people would read, read this thing. You know, Nick said, Carl, guess what? People are actually reading it. And it was, it was great, you know, as we discovered what was happening or what could happen over the internet in terms of communication at the same time that we were witnessing for us Red Sox fans, what was really after 86 years, a miracle. It was great. It was awesome. Did you ever cover any Super Bowls? Five of them. I've been to five Super Bowls. Thanks to Tom Brady. You know, <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it's uh, and the Super Bowl is a lot of fun too. And uh, I remember I was at the Seattle game. Where was that down in Arizona? I think maybe. And we had these seats up in the press section, which were way above the end zone. And it was the end zone where Seattle was moving. And remember, the Seahawks made this ridiculously miracle catch by a guy who's, he had, oh, I can't remember his last name, but it was an ironic last name. Like it was going to be a, oh, his name was Curse. I think his name was Curse, um, a, a receiver who made an impossible catch. And then, of course, they throw this interception uh, to Malcolm Butler. And I couldn't figure out way up in the stands what exactly was happening. But all the Patriots were jumping up and down and Butler landed on the ground. And I realized that we had won. And that was awesome. But I also had the opportunity and many thanks to our news director, Peter Casey, who had sent me all over the place um, on sports stories, which were a lot of fun. I remember going to, to San Diego. Oh, here's a good story. The Patriots, the AFC championship game was against the San Diego Chargers. I can't remember what year it was, but the Chargers. I can. Had... Can you? It what was, it was on, uh, 2008. All and right. I remember, I remember it because Terry and I were on a cruise that day. <laughs> and that Sunday, they talked about how cold it was in Boston. And we're sitting out on the balcony in shorts. <laughs> eating fruit and drinking wine, listening to the broadcast. <laughs> were you listening to the great Gil Santos? Uh, no, unfortunately. Oh. We were listening. To, uh, we, we didn't have XM radio or anything like that back then, but we, we were listening to the CBS broadcast. Oh, awesome. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe Gil wasn't able to do it because of his championship game. But anyway, when I think of the Patriots, I think of Gil. But anyway, my memory from that game was that the Chargers were expected to win, and they should have won, but they didn't. You know, we had Tom Brady, and so we won. And I remember I got on the field afterwards, and remember Vince Wilfork, what a big guy yep. he was. So the Chargers fans were just outraged. They were just livid, yelling at the team and throwing things on the field. And I walked off the field behind Vince Wilfork, and people were throwing things at him, and big Vince put his helmet on and he yelled up at the stands and he yelled out, go home, go home. 
And it's something <laughs> I'll never forget. I just thought it was awesome. A purely patriot moment right there. A, a, a moment of triumph. And that for 20 years was the Patriots. I mean, they were under Tom Brady. They, it was one miracle after another. It was awesome. And I went to five Super Bowls because of that guy. Were, were you at the game when they were behind 28 to three and they no. turned out to win it? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. Oh. I was with my kids watching it. That was awesome, wasn't it? 20. Oh, yeah. We were watching it, too. We were watching it with Jackie Goddard, as a matter of fact. Oh, and a, a national award-winning reporter who yep. ended up, who became a, a press secretary for Boston Mayor Tom Menino, who was a story in and of himself. I mean, that was... What, what does it take to be a good journalist? Listen, if somebody wants to be a journalist today, yeah. what does it take to be one? Listen, you got to listen. You got to listen. You got to keep your eyes open. You got to try to take the pulse of reality and try to determine what truth is and try to put, depending on your format, and my format is 43 seconds, 43 to 45 seconds. Tell a story in that amount of time. Just say what you see. I remember I was at a, at a fire years and years ago. <clears throat> I think it was in Lawrence. And there were a number of people who died. Everybody was lining up for their noon live shots. And I was sitting next to uh, Jack Harper. You might have heard me tell tell this story at the Hall of Fame ceremony. Um, and, and I remember Jack Harper turning to me and he said, Carl, they make it all look so hard. All we do is say what we see. And in, a, in terms of spot news anyway, that, that is a lot of what I did. I just said what I, what I saw. And of course you have to open an un, a lot of envelopes, read a lot of messages of reality that at first might be indecipherable so you try to squint the eyes of your mind and try to decipher what the truth is and then try to deliver that truth on a platter of 45 seconds. And it's not as hard as it sounds sometimes. I guess it kind of depends on the story. But you have to be open. You have to have your ears open, your eyes open, your mind open in order to discern the truth. And then you have to have the intelligence to transcribe that truth, to deliver it on a platter that's decipherable, discernible, understandable to the listener or the viewer or the reader. So it's, it's, I, I really think it's a magical profession. It's been my life. It's, it's been awesome. It's been poetry. You know, I went to the University of New Hampshire. I grew up in the Midwest, but I went to UNH because they gave me a full ride to study one year of poetry. And I thought that's that's interesting. And it was. I studied with Charlie Simic, who ended up being the the American poet laureate for a little a great guy, wonderful guy. But for me, reality is the most amazing poetry because of all its colors and all its varied layers of truth and its level of unpredictability. I remember Charlie telling me that a good poem confounds expectations and reality does that almost every day you expect one thing and you get another and that's when it becomes a headline that's when it becomes news that's when it becomes poetry i can sit here and remember meeting people in the business that that i just love like you yeah. i can remember sitting in the press box with 
Joe Torrey at Fenway Park when he was a broadcaster wow. for the California Angels. Wow. I can remember having lunch with Don Cherry, the, the coach <laughs> of the Boston Bruins. Yeah. Um, I can remember interviewing Phil Rizzuto when I was in college. <laughs> um, for you, if you have to sit back and remember and go through a roller decks of people, who, uh, oh, I got to I gotta add Carol Burnett and Bob Hope and that yeah. list. That's and also awesome. Clayton, Clayton Moore, who was the Lone Ranger. Um, <laughs> so, but for you, if you had to go through a roller decks and pick out some of the best people that you've talked to and interviewed as far as celebrity is concerned, who would they be? I don't care much about celebrity. I mean, I've talked to a, a number of guys who were presidents or running for president. And uh, I, but when I look back and, and think of the, uh, the people who I really remember, the interviews that I really remember the most, I remember, I remember the man who I remember going, to, it was about 6.30 in the morning. It was maybe late spring or early fall. It was kind of cool, but the sun was up. And there was a man walking on the sidewalk. And I was following up on the story of a little girl. She was maybe, I don't know, Kenny, six, seven years old. She was, had been walking with her mom home from school the day before. And a drunk driver hit her and killed her in Dorchester. And I was to do a follow-up story on that. And there was I was all by myself at that location. And there was a man just standing there near where it happened. And I, I went up to him and I, I asked him, you know anything about what happened? And he looked at me and he said, yes, I'm, I'm the girl's father. And, and uh, I took a moment and I said, look, I, I work at a radio station here in Boston, the WBZ, and, and I'm, I'm just telling people about what happened and trying to, you know, let people know who she was. And I want to know if there's anything you want to let people know about who your daughter was. And I don't remember what he said, but even trying to remember it now, it almost brings tears to my eyes because it was such a beautiful, eloquent, heartfelt and a heartbroken uh, eulogy for his daughter. And I recorded it and uh, just reported on it. And uh, I'll take that over any president any day. Uh, but, but but one thing I would add, though, is another interview I do remember on a lighter note is after going back to 2004 in the Red Sox uh, clubhouse. There's a big celebration, of course, there in St. Louis. And everybody was hooting and hollering. And Manny Ramirez had been named the MVP of the uh, of the series of the world's, you know, because he had a good four games against St. Louis. It was Ortiz who was the king of that the whole business, but it was Manny who won the World Series MVP. So anyway, I, I, there's Manny sitting by himself, all by himself in the corner. Everybody's hooting and hollering. And I said, Manny, is there anything you want to say? And he said, you know, before the, before the season started, I told my wife I'm going to be the MVP of something, and now I am. And I, I never forget that. For whatever reason, I'll never forget that. <laughs> now, I... I know this is awfully short notice, but but you have managed to write poetry on all kinds of different situations. 
Yeah. And I re- I remember hearing you read the poem that you wrote when Gary LaPierre, whom we both love and adored, uh, left BZ. Do you do you happen to have that? Is there any way you could read that? Well, you, you should have told me ahead of time because it might be on the internet somewhere. Um, as you're as you're talking to me, let me just log on. I don't know how much time we have, but we got enough. Um, we'll make time for this one. I don't know. You know, I'm surprised. Sometimes I'll Google Carl Stevens WBZ and I'll see poems that I don't even remember I wrote. <laughs> let me just see if it comes up here. It says, "Watch a poem." Okay. I guess I do. You ready? I'm ready. Um, I think this is it. I didn't know much about radio, how it could sound, where it could go, how to put magic into the air until I heard Gary LaPierre. When I listened to him, I was chasing a star drawn to the voice that I heard in my car. He was my mentor. He was my friend. Now his life has come to an end. He was as good as you can get. But now that shining sun has set. How many mornings began with his voice telling New England's girls and boys whether they had school on a winter day? Can that voice ever really go away? He told us that man was now on the moon, that Martin Luther King was taken too soon, that Beatles were at Suffolk Downs to sing, that the Patriots had won their first Super Bowl ring. For his listeners, he presented reality. But could such a gift be confined by mortality? I know that his breath from us is severed, but for me, that voice will live forever. He gave us the headlines, the stories, the facts. We counted on him. He had all our backs. He commanded the words and the stories he said. He gave us the truth as we rose from our beds. And at work, he was filled with such laughter and joy. He cherished his gift, wide-eyed like a boy. And that's true. I can hear the echo of that laughter still, filling the newsroom, him and Gil. He kept the boat of news from going to drift. He was our captain and he was our gift. Thank you for sharing what was given to you, for doing it right, for seeing it through. With your soul in heaven and your voice in the air, I say thank you, my friend, Gary LaPierre. So I guess that's the poem. Oh, listen, it it brought tears to my eyes listening to it. Um, Because as I said, you are one of the best and there's proof right there if anyone if anyone doubts it. I, I can't thank you for enough thank for you. sitting down and, and talking. Um, you are one of the best. And the news business is at a loss because I know you're still working, but you're not <laughs> doing as much as you used to. So well, all right. That might be a good thing, Kenny. Let the next generation <laughs> carry the time. Let somebody else carry that baton. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. Carl, get rid of that cold. Know, know that, uh, know that uh, you'll always be in my thoughts because of who you are and what you have done in the business. Thank you for talking to me. My pleasure. And that'll do it for this edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's K-J-M-E-Y-E-R-7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.